Good morning. Didn't expect to spend Labor Day weekend like this. Quite a, quite a shift. We're in a series on the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. Last week, we uh, looked at the initial Psalm of 15 Psalms that were sung as people, pilgrims, made a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Everything always goes up to Jerusalem, no, where, no matter where you are geographically. It is the highest uh, uh, peak in that entire area, so in that sense you go up, but you also go up because it's the holiest place, to be sure. That is where the temple of the Lord sat. And so these psalms accompanied the pilgrimage, the travels that, that people made on their way to Jerusalem. And last week, we looked uh, very briefly, we gave thought to the fact that in Luke chapter 2, the very end, Jesus, as a 12-year-old child, went with his parents, who we were told, goes every year, makes that pilgrimage every year, and they sang these psalms. So that kind of brings it home. And we entertain the idea that we can make very real for ourselves, that these psalms can represent to us a personal pilgrimage in which we draw near to the Lord through the things that pilgrims have sung every year for years. Whether the temple stood as it once did or as it no longer stands, but is represented in Israel. So let me uh, draw our attention today. We're going to look at Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord. By the way, I want to mention, I, I'm sorry my, my glasses go dark. Kind of makes me look like a beatnik or something. But um, I tried to find some glasses that didn't do this out in the sun. I, when I bought them, I didn't expect to be speaking to you out in the sun. So... Please bear with me. My eyes are behind the glasses. I wanted to take you back to something uh, I was doing on July 10th of this year. On July 10th, I, I did the memorial service for Kathy Verberg held at the graveside. I got there way too early. I meant to go early, but I had my time wrong, so I got there really early. And it was uh, about this time in the morning, just a little bit later, actually, that I got there. Same basic time of day. And since I was early, I walked the cemetery quietly, alone. It was a pretty slow process. I read all of the tombstones, all of the headstones, the grave markers. And it was, it was really sobering. When I was five years old, living in Modesto, our backyard backed up to the Scenic Drive Cemetery, which is the oldest, largest cemetery in the Modesto area. And so as a child, I would play 
well, when I got my mom's permission, I would uh, play in the cemetery. And there was all kinds of interesting stone structures, memorials, ways of commemorating people's lives. So on July 10th, when I was walking our cemetery here in town, it brought back a lot of memories. But it was also, as I said, sobering because headstones, some bearing a picture and a brief sentiment, reminded me that for most of us, a gravestone amounts to the only public memory of a person's existence. All the years of a person's life are abbreviated in a few etchings on stone. Years of life are reduced to a dash between the person's birth date and death date. It's that brief. For most of history, any knowledge of someone's existence outlived the collective memory of a person's family only by virtue of a headstone. And that was if they could afford it. In other words, there are millions of people that have existed, some with a short life, some with a long life, some with a life of significant impact, some without, and we have no knowledge of their existence if there was no headstone, no memorial, no short statement to bear witness to the fact that they once lived. Because once their family died, their collective memory died with them. Kind of an amazing thought, don't you know? I do have some Minnesotan in my blood. And that was little more... Those tombstones, and by the way, they're, they're the interest, great interest, of archaeologists and historians because they can tell us more or corroborate written accounts of a time that's lost to us that is of interest to us because some have left writings. But for all that is left, there is so much more that is not. I think that will be changing as long as the internet exists. As long as there is social media, there will be some kind of a record that you can search. You can find out something about yourself. Maybe things that you don't want people to remember. People will be able to construct a biography of your life, what it meant or what kind of an impact your life had. It might be skewed if it's constructed largely from what we leave, what tracks or what traces of our lives continue to exist or have an existence through social media, even after we're dead. 
A pastor friend of mine has been dead about three years. He still has a Twitter account. You can still go to that account and read his tweets. It's sobering. As I walked, I was surprised. So I continued to read the headstones. I was surprised to meet so many, comparatively, more than I expected, who were born the year I was born or after I was born. And yet I was standing over their grave. How soon before someone is standing over mine? Do you ever think about death? I couldn't, I couldn't escape it growing up. As a kid, in grade school, we actually had classroom drills where we practiced ducking under our desks because there was a constant threat of a nuclear attack. There was a constant threat of atomic doom. And even as the years passed and we became or grew accustomed to that sort of thing, then there was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in a sense, there have been continuing crises clouds, so to speak, in the sky of our lives that never go away. We just become accustomed to living with them. And then, as a Christian, surrendering my life to Jesus as Lord at 19, there's a lot about death in the Christian life. Take up your cross and follow me. Baptism, you have died with Christ and been buried with him. Yes, raised to new life, but there it is, died with Christ, buried with him. Or Paul in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, just a, an example of a constant reference to death because of life. I no longer live, but he lives in me. And then as a husband, at 20, shortly 21, because when you become a husband, you take on responsibility and you realize you're responsible for another life. And since my mother died two weeks after I turned 21, not even a month after I got married, you begin to count every day as though it could be your last. I didn't think I would live past 30. I began to wonder if Shelly and I would enjoy a long life or if something might happen to her. So you kind of live with that idea that these things are impermanent. They are transitory. They're precious. I don't want to lose them but they're losable.
And then as an aging man, it's likely I have less time to live than I have pastored Grace Community Church. You will get to a point where you feel like you can count the number of years. Because people that you've grown up with or watched on television or celebrities, they die. And you say, well, if I were to die at the age of that person, that gives me X number of years left. But we don't know, do we? Remembering death, I couldn't quite escape it, but it's actually become a practice. It's called memento mori, remember death. It is a good practice. It brings good things. It might surprise you how much death is really all around us, although in our society, we like to play it down. We like to put it in the closet, keep it behind the scenes, as though it's not real. It won't happen. We won't have loss. But remembering death can be healthy because it keeps us level-headed. It keeps us humble. It keeps us, and this is most important, it keeps us aware of life and living and how each day is a gift. That the risen Lord, wow, that, that's not something just for the Bible or for Sundays that there is resurrection power that is ours in Christ because he didn't just die on the cross. And yes, he died on the cross for a real purpose, but that purpose was fulfilled in his resurrection. Newness of life that is ours and that we commemorate, celebrate, and enter into in baptism. And remember... Every time we take the Lord's cup, enter into the Lord's supper, and observe communion, his death and the new covenant, which involves the resurrection. It reminds me, remembering death does, it reminds me a life well lived is not lived even a day at, time, at a time, but one moment at a time. And in the fullest sense of the word, lived by faith. All else, all else is either a memory or imagination. Think about it. As a kid, fearing an atomic bomb, it was a real presence. I used to think about it. I used to worry about it at night used to think the Russians were going to kick down the door and point a gun at me. My favorite cartoon was Mighty Mouse. It had its heyday in the years 55, 1955 to 67. 
There was a theme song. I don't know if any of you remember Mighty Mouse. Mr. Trouble never hangs around when he hears this mighty sound. Here I come to save the day. That means that Mighty Mouse is on the way. Yeah. I love that. I knew it was make-believe, but it made me feel good. Paul Terry, the creator of Mighty Mouse and Terry Toon Studio, in 1969 had an interview which we can still read. When a man is sick, he said, or down or hurt, you say, there's nothing more we can do. It's in God's hands. And he either survives or he doesn't according to God's plan, right? So man's extremity is God's opportunity. That's the plot. That's the formula for Mighty Mouse. Great need when there's nothing humanly possible. And then someone asks the question, isn't there someone who can help? Yes, there is, he continued, Mighty Mouse. And that was the plot formula of every episode. Our extremity is God's opportunity. That's the theme of Psalm 121. Let me read it to us. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is my help. The pilgrim teaches us. The Lord is our keeper and our protector. Those are the three primary themes of this pilgrim song that are sung. It opens in verses 1 and 2. Our help is, we're told, in the Lord, comes from the Lord. The word for help is a really beautiful word. It's the word azer. Not much to hear, really, to our ear. But that's the Hebrew word, azer. It's spelled E-Z-E-R. That would be how we would fanatically spell it. But we would pronounce it, that E, like an A, a long A, azer. But it's spelled like easier, 
which I find interesting, phonetically speaking. Here's what an azer is. An azer does what we cannot do for ourselves. An azer gives us help. An azer is our helper. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and 20, if you're reading the Bible and you start at Genesis, this is the first use of azer in chapter 2, verse 18. God makes a helper. He's made man from the dust of the earth. He's breathed life into the man. But it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates for man an azer. If an azer does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, then when God creates woman, an azer for man, it means that man and woman are better together than apart. And man is completed or insufficient without a helper, without an azer. In Job chapter 26, verse 2, an azer is a helper, and it says, for one who has no power. A helper does for us what we have no power to do for ourselves. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 25, Jacob blesses his son Joseph. And he says in this blessing to Joseph that God is the help of my father. In other words, the covenant promise is rooted, the promise that went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob down to the whole nation of Israel and is the inheritance of the people of God in Jesus Christ. Our God is our azer. When Paul Terry said human extremity is God's opportunity, he defined the word azer. But God's help is not rare. It's just our awareness of our need that is rare. Because we live in a world in which we want to mask the fact that we're needy, that we need help, that we can't do it on our own. And yet that's not the truth, and each one of us knows it. And yet we try to live as though we're entirely independent, and we need nobody else. How damaging is that for a life of faith where we're called to follow as disciples and learners of Jesus and to lead a life of dependence upon God? Paul revealed how important this is when he tried to live his life in his own strength and God kind of slapped him down and said, you'll be a lot stronger if you're a lot weaker because my, faith, my, my power is perfected in weakness, not your strength. 
Because in your strength, you're pushing me out of the way. You're pushing me back out of your life. You're resisting and rejecting and renouncing my help when you're always trying to live your life on your own, in your own strength, saying, I can do this on my own. And isn't that at the heart of our culture? What a clash with the call of Christ on our lives. What's the resurrection power for? A rainy day? Or the last day? But what if it's supposed to be for any day? What if it's supposed to be for this day, right here, right now? All that talk about death was to help us realize how much we need his resurrection power each and every moment of each and every day. When was the last time you tasted it? When was the last time you called upon it? When was the last testimony you can give to it in your life with thanksgiving and gratitude? These are the questions that should be haunting us at this time of new difficulty. And yet I see us trying to do it on our own and angry about it. That's not resurrection power at work. That's not faith at work. The Lord is my help, he says. He asks the question and then he professes, he confesses the answer. Where's my help come from? The Lord is my help. But now in verses 3 through 8, there's a change of person. Our pilgrim hears another voice. It's not his voice. My changes to you. Others respond to his confession of faith. The Lord is my helper. And then someone else sings out. Someone else gives a testimony. Someone answers his confession with a testimony to God's faithfulness. In fact, in these verses 3 through 8, there could be a chorus of three different voices. Verses 3 through 8 brings a blessing, a benediction to the pilgrim's profession. And how sweet it is when we have Christian fellowship in difficult times and we say, I'm leaning on the Lord and our, our confession that we need the Lord is answered with testimonies of how the Lord works in our lives and his character of faithfulness. And they extol God's character here. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Look, see, take note. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber, which means doze, nor sleep. 
He won't even yawn. He won't even go, oh, it's getting late. Time to go. He is our keeper. Shamar. S-H-A-M-A-R. Shamar. Six times in these verses, the Hebrew word shamar occurs. Keep, keeps, keeper. It means someone who watches over you. Someone who stands guard and keeps an eye on you. A babysitter, a good babysitter, would be a shamar. Someone you can trust to watch the shop while you're away would be a shamar. Someone who stands on the wall at the borders of our lives or the borders of a country to protect its citizens would be a shamar. God is the shamar of our lives. He is the keeper and he is depicted here, his character. He's vigilant. And then it tells us he is the shade on our right hand. And now, in social media and uh, media in general, you'll hear the word shade, and it's not complimentary. But here, the idea of shade can even be shadow. And the idea, your right hand is representative of your strength. And God overshadows. He casts a shadow. He is as a shadow. How close does someone have to be to cast a shadow? How near is God to you to care for you, to protect you, to watch over you? That's the image. That's a beautiful idea to know that God, his shade, his shadow is on our right hand. Some nights I wake up, I go to sleep. Shelly says I have the gift of sleep. I like that. I hope I never lose it. Right now it continues to work. I fall asleep very quickly, and I, I, most nights I sleep soundly, and I wake up, boom, I'm ready to go. But there are occasional nights where I wake up in the middle and my mind starts going, and I'm, I'm kind of caught like a fly in a spider web by my own thinking. And I can't seem to let it go. And they actually create fears and terrors, responsibilities that I can't control. Things that really matter to me that I can't, as much as I want to fix or take care of it, or I'm committed to do it, I'm not going to run away from it. There's nothing at that time that I can do to make it right. That's a lousy feeling. And it can create space for fear. And you know what I've learned to do is I start reciting God's word. Psalm 23 always is my favorite. The Lord is my shepherd. And I think of the shepherd mentioned in Isaiah or in the Psalm of David where the shepherd picks up the young lamb and carries it because it's, it's too much for it to make it on its own four legs. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have no need. He takes care of me. I'm in his strong arms. I'm protected by his crook. No wolf, no fox, no, no predator can attack me. And I repeat that. Here's a line that we could add to such a Christian mantra. We should have some Christian mantras for days like these. Now we can add another assurance to the Lord is my shepherd. And it comes from this psalm. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will neither doze nor sleep. In verses 5 through 6, as I said, where it says, the sun will not scorch you, nor the moon. And you think, wow, I've never really felt the heat of the moon. But what he's saying is, neither the scorching sun by day, nor the fears that come by moon. And there were many fears that were associated with the night, and even mania associated with the moon. In other words, day or night, you're safe. As we look to the Lord and find our help in him. David in Psalm 94, 91 verse 4 says, I will sing in the shade or shadow of your wings. So close is the Lord. We are in his shadow. He is our screen, our sunscreen in the day and our screen at night. And so the Lord is both our help, our keeper, and our protector. In verses 7 and 8, the psalm affirms the Lord's disposition toward us. And here it really gets specific and really personal and really quite intimate in verse 7 and 8. The psalm affirms God's faithfulness to us. And this is a pilgrim-tested testimony that comes from experience. I remembered the words when I thought of God's faithfulness. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. That was written by Horatio Spafford, as you probably already know. He wrote it as he was steaming his way to, to Britain, where in a previous steamship that had been sunk, his wife was saved, but their daughters were lost. And as he was steaming to meet his wife across the Atlantic, he wrote the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. No, my, it is well with my soul. But when I looked into his life, his wife Anna and Horatio suffered considerable losses. They went through the great Chicago fire and lost many of their holdings. They lost their daughters at sea 
They had three more children and lost their youngest son, a three-year-old. And yet, through all of that, they continued to walk with the Lord, serving the Lord, and continuing to live for him. Spafford's experience seems to make verse 7 a blatant false testimony. He will keep you, he will guard your, your life from all evil or all harm. They're basically interchangeable. How can that be if you lose your daughters or your, all of your holdings burn up? Or then after having three more children, your youngest son dies. I thought he never sleeps, never slumbers. No harm will come to me. But the word life does say something a, a little bit deeper. Yes, it entails life, but it, it points to something more intimate. It is the word nefesh in Hebrew. It is the word anima in Latin. It is the word psuche in Greek. It is the word soul in our language. He will preserve our soul. What is the soul? That's fascinated and occupied. It's even fascinated and occupied me. I read just about everything I can get in antiquity of those who thought long and hard and had something to say about the soul. I referred to a book of Hebrew anthropology that was focused just on the anthropological terms of the Old Testament to read about nefesh. It's a little fuzzy around the edges, but I think it's safe to say that nefesh here stands for the you of you, the self. I don't know how you define the you of you, but it has something to do with who you really are, the essence of you. The you that you just can't imagine dying. The you that you can't seem to put aside or get away from. And yet it's the you that God says he loves. Even as we sang this morning. That he loves in Jesus Christ. That he loves when his son went to the cross. And that he loves when he rose from the dead to bear witness and confirm that life for us does not end with physical death. Verse 7 speaks of the Lord who cares more about your soul, the you of you. And Jesus said, what becomes of our souls if we lose our souls but gain the whole world. There's something more important, and that's what's being spoken to here when God says, no harm will come to you. The Lord is my help. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my protector. And it's never more true to us than when we set our eyes upon Jesus and when we remember that he is our help. And that's what we remember 
as we prepare our hearts to observe the bread and the cup. Did you all get one of these? If you tear off the very top part, there's a little wafer. And then if you flip up the tab, after we take the bread, you can peel that back and there'll be some, some juice there that represents between the two, the, the wafer and the blood, the blood colored juice that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are this morning, what your week has been like. If you felt far from the Lord or you feel very close to him, that's why we gather together. That's why we need each other. That's why pilgrims need the testimony of other pilgrims to echo their professions and say, I know that Lord, he's my Lord too. He's my help, he's my keeper, he's my protector. It's good to hear each other say that, to share that experience, to have our souls mingle in the reality of the risen Lord. That's what we celebrate in this bread and this cup. What Jesus has done for us, both his death and his resurrection in the new covenant. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts and then I'll lead us in taking the bread and the cup. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. It's unleavened because it points back to the Exodus, the Passover meal, as they waited upon the Lord and prepared to leave, leave the bondage of Egypt, follow the Lord out. It's called the Exodus. The word Exodus actually means exit. That became the single most important deliverance of the people of God until Jesus Christ. 
which we celebrate now. That's what we remember. His deliverance from bondage. And as they were observing a Passover meal, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. 